0: The text for us this morning is a passage that usually you hear around Christmas during Advent, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. This will be for most probably pretty familiar. It's the birth narrative of Jesus. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. it's from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so, Father, I pray that in these next minutes you would give us uh, your Holy Spirit in fullness, that we might be able to hear you speaking to us through your word, that we would be able to, to have eyes to see the glorious concerning your Son and our Savior, Jesus, and that we would leave here knowing that we have met with you, that we have heard from you, and that we have even greater confidence in the glorious grace that is ours through his life, his death, resurrection, ascension, present reign, and future hope of glory and his return. And so, Lord, would you bless your people today? Even now, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. As was mentioned, I now, after a long time of pastoral ministry in various churches and in 12 years, most recently church planting in Dahlonega, Georgia, I now teach seminary full-time and love it, love it. Uh, and uh, I tell my students, not only at the beginning of every class, but almost before every class, Class. I mean, every course and every class we meet. Just a reminder that that when we gather for class, our goal is not merely to know more information. It's very important. Information is leverage, though, for a relationship. We don't just want to know about Jesus. I want you to and myself to know Jesus. To know, not merely about but to truly know. It's what Vernon Manning said, that we must never allow the authority of books, institutions, or leaders, which are all very important. I teach in an institution. I love books, write books. And yet, we must never allow this mere knowledge to replace knowing Jesus personally and directly. And so to that end, we're going to have a little class. I'm calling it Christology 101, I'm bringing a little bit of the seminary here to Sunday morning. Uh, but the idea is that I want to show you five things every Christian needs to know about Jesus in order to know Jesus. That's the plan. We have to know about someone to know them, but it's not enough just to know about them. I want us to know very personally and directly, this Jesus. And so the five things, they won't go, they'll go quickly, they won't last long, I I promise you, we will be out um, on time, and that's up to the communion, by the way, so we'll see. But uh, number one, number one, in seminary we number things, we do in sermons also, but usually it's three, for us it's going to be five, number one is his personal name, his personal name. In the ancient world, names were significant. In the South, names are significant because of our connection to other family, possibly. But in the ancient world, names were ripe with, with meaning. Uh, for example, Abraham. It was named, he was Abram, but it was named Abraham because the, the two parts of his name, Av, we say A, but Av means father, and Raham, Means multitude. And his name would be father of many nations or father of a multitude, father of many. So Abraham, was like, uh, that's okay, but it, it means something to those who understand the Hebrew name Abraham, father of a multitude, Avraham. Moses, you've probably heard also has significant meaning because he was in a basket and he was drawn out of the water, so his name literally means drawn out. Mesheah, may. Me, means out of. Shea means drawn, reverse it, drawn, out of, or out of, drawn. The name means something when translated into the original Hebrew name. Now, when translated, the name Jesus also, we're told in the text, has a meaning. It's the Lord saves or Yahweh saves because the name Jesus in the original Greek By the way, the New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So Jesus is the English form of the Greek word Jesus, which in Greek when translated means literally Yahweh saves. That is the Greek form of the Old Testament name Joshua or Yesheia, Yeshua, depending on how you want to pronounce that. The, The idea is that he is the one who was named the Lord Saves. His name in Greek reinforces this. Yeshua, the Old Testament, Joshua, reinforces that. That's why the angel told Joseph to name Mary's son a specific name. Don't name him just anything, And especially, Joseph, don't name him after yourself, because he's not your son, he is the son of God. And so here we have him being named the one who will save his people from their sins. It's while we too receive new names. It happened quite often in the Old Testament, even the New Testament, where Simon gets the name Peter, or Rock. In the New Testament, believers are referred to as saints. But the word saint comes from a, you're going to guess it, a Greek word, hagios. Hagios, when translated, means holy ones. And so those who are believers, who are Christians, are, are called saints, we're called holy ones. Not that we in ourselves have achieved a holiness but that we have received a holiness as a gift of God. We've been set apart to receive, as the text says in Matthew 1, to receive the forgiveness of sins and the gift righteousness of Jesus. And so in Jesus as the Savior, sinners become saints. Aliens become citizens. Enemies become Friends, orphans become adopted children, and the condemned are justified and set free. It's while we sing, and sang just a little while ago, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds. So we, we know his name. What does his name mean? It means the Lord saves. Well, the next thing we can see, and it's important to know, is his messianic title. Up until about the 10th century... A.D., most people were given just one name. One name. Not not a last name, but one name. If there were a last name, it would be connected either to their father or the place where they were from. For example, we have Simon, son of Jonah in the New Testament. We read of Saul of Tarsus, yeah. And then there's Jesus of Nazareth, yeah. This is to say simply that Christ is not Jesus' last name, uh, Jesus Christ, and that would be something we would assume, right, because we have first names and last names. It's not his last name, it is his messianic title. That word Christ comes from a Greek word, Christos, it's just transliterated right into the English as, as Christ. Christos is the Greek form of the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, Messiah. Both mean the anointed one. And to be anointed was to be set apart, to be chosen by God and consecrated for a special purpose. And so when we, we see Jesus, His name means the Lord saves. Very distinctive. His title as Christ is the anointed one, the promised Messiah who had been promised for generations and generations and generations going back all the way to Genesis 3.15 where the, the seed of the woman, a descendant of Eve, would crush Satan and reverse the curse that had entered the world through the first rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden. And so for Jesus, we have this consecrated calling to be the Messiah, the Christ. And we see it fulfilled, thirdly, in his role as the Son. So we have his his personal name, his messianic title, and his role as the Son. Where Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 1, at the end of verse 4, he says, In love, he, that's God the Father, predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He, as God the Father, loves, which is God the Son. Because in Him, verse 7, that's Jesus, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us he lavished there's some words that we just don't want to just don't want to read too quickly we want to come back and just recognize what all this means this is over the top beyond our wildest dreams what is happening where God is sending His Son into the world to do something so cosmically overwhelming for those who will receive it. It's lavished, and this grace, it is a gift, it is freely given. This idea of redemption, though, in the ancient world was associated with either slavery or imprisonment. Which are very similar concepts. But the, the idea is that to be set free from either from either an indentured slavery or to be set free from some form of imprisonment, it required the payment of a redemption price. Because redemption literally means to be set free. And just like the Israelites in the Old Testament were enslaved by the Egyptians and needed someone like Moses to set them free. We are enslaved not to a geopolitical nation, but we are enslaved to our own sin natures. And we're imprisoned under the just condemnation of God's law. So that's that's the bad news. The good news, the promise is that we can be set free by someone who is a qualified substitute, who is able to fulfill the demands that the law holds over the convicted. If those broken laws, if that sentence that the sinner deserves, that the condemned deserves, can be fulfilled in some way, then the sentence can be complete and the condemned can be set free. And this is what the cross is all about, where Jesus is the one, as the Son, who pays the redemption price. The Father has chosen His people. The Spirit, later in that that chapter in Ephesians 1, will, will come along and apply the benefits of the Son's work and seal those believers with salvation. But it's the Son's role, the Son's role to be the Redeemer who serves the sentence of death that our treasonous sins deserved. And so Jesus, he receives the justice of God so that we can receive the mercy of God, as fully forgiven, perfectly perfectly accepted, dearly loved, adopted sons and daughters of the Father. And so His name, the Lord saves. His title as the, the Messiah, the anointed one who will rescue and deliver His people, His Role as the son to be the redeemer, to set us free by serving the sentence of death that we deserved. It all points to saving us from our sins. But there's more. That's number four, his position as Lord. When we speak of Jesus as Lord, we're talking about his reign as the creator king. A lord uh, king but not just a king, the creator king. Paul writes in Colossians 1.16, for by him, by Jesus, all things were created. Jesus, the creator king. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. And so what happens with Jesus as creator king is that he He designs both physical laws to govern the material world and he creates moral laws to govern the moral, spiritual, relational world. And some think that this moral framework that we find in Scripture restricts human freedom and restricts. Human happiness. We must be set free from the shackles of this moral system when it actually has been established for the context in which humanity could flourish. We're not being restricted by this moral design of God. We are being put in an environment where we can flourish. It's like having a fish and telling it, you can, you'll either flourish in this contained tank, which is everything you need, or you can attempt to flourish outside of those boundaries on the floor with the family dog. And it might look like more fun on the floor with the family dog. But I assure you, it will not take long for the fish to realize that he or she has made a terrible mistake. And that's what we see happen in our lives, is that when we think that we have greater wisdom than God, we encounter problems when we defy both physical laws if I want to defy gravity, there's going to be a consequence to that, and it's going to be painful. In the same way, if I'm going to defy the moral laws, there's going to be a consequence also, and it's going to be painful. That's why, though, we speak of sin as treason. The Creator King, He, he has, in His goodness and His wisdom, given us uh, these, this pathway for life, and yet, And yet we have defied that path. And so sin isn't just breaking arbitrary social constructs or doing bad things. It's willful defiance against a good and wise creator king. And yet, it is the creator king against whom we have rebelled and and, and defied, it is this king who chose to suffer the very penalty our rebellion deserved. What kind of king is this that will substitute himself in the place of the traitor Not only to forgive the traitor, but to bring that traitor into his own family. It's a staggering grace. This is a lavished mercy upon us. And so what we know already is that this is the purpose for which the king was born. And so we come full circle to number five, his unique conception. The Apostles' Creed, as well as the Nicene Creed that we read earlier, affirms the angel's message to Joseph, saying that that Jesus was born conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is a one-time thing. The only time this has ever happened was with Jesus. This is a unique conception, and there is mystery here. In fact, there's so much mystery that this has its own theological terminology. If you to read theology books about this conception, you would not go too far before you found this term, hypostatic union. Yeah, that's a a big theological term. Um, All it means, it's a fancy concept that that teaches us that Jesus is both fully God and fully human in one person. Hypostatic union. That's free this morning. That's just a bonus for you to have that term under your belt. Fully God, fully human, one person. This means this means that as the eternally pre-existent God, we also read, and that's in creed, not created, eternally begotten, not created. Number one, that Jesus didn't come into existence at his birth. And number two, that in becoming human, he did not cease to be God. So as the God-man, Jesus possesses two natures in one person. A a sinless divine nature and a sinless human nature. Making Him, making Him the one uniquely qualified to be our sin substitute. Remember, we can be set free if there is someone who is qualified to be our sin substitute. And here we have the only one, the perfect mediator between God and mankind, the one who is both God and man. He is the one who would reconcile us to the Father, no longer as enemies, condemned orphans, but as justified, adopted, beloved children but I want to be really clear, really clear that uh, the cross of Jesus was not the Son, Jesus' way of convincing the Father to forgive and accept us. It can kind of seem like that. There are phrases like the the wrath of God, the, the, the justice of God the Father, that all these terms that show, well, this is giving a context of God being judge. And any good judge has to execute the demands of the law by fulfilling justice. If, if a judge were to say, you know what, there's a heinous crime that's been committed, and I know these people over here have been really harmed badly, but I'm in a good mood. And I think I'm just going to let him go. We're good with that? We would say, wait, wait, wait. That's injustice. There must, the law demands that 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 crime serve a just sentence. And so God, to be just, must have the sins committed against the law treason. Justice must be fulfilled. And so here we have Jesus fulfill the justice. But Augustine, early early church leader, he says something that really, I think, helps us grasp that this is not the Son convincing the Father to forgive us. He says this. This is Augustine saying, "...the cross of Christ did not secure the love of the Father. Rather, the love of the Father secured the cross of Christ. We Remember in Ephesians 1, we read a moment ago, it was in love the Father predestined His people. In love, the Father sent the Son. In love, the Spirit comes and unites us to Jesus. It's from the love of God. And it's all of grace. And after the cross, the death of Jesus, he, he rises from the tomb. He confirms that all these promises, all this lavish grace, is true. It's confirmed. It is sealed. It is done. That whosoever confesses their need for mercy and believes upon Jesus as the one who bore their sin, that that one who stands with nothing but to receive can say, I I look to Jesus and know that in Him I'm forgiven, in Him I'm accepted, in Him I am beloved as a child of the Father. And that really is the opportunity for us. It's to know more about Jesus so that we might know more of Jesus. To know him personally and intimately as this one who has given himself. That we might be reconciled. He gave his life that we might be free, have peace, have hope. No joy. Yet it might be, I don't know, it might be that that you here in this place today, coming Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for years and years, that you know a lot about Jesus. But you're wondering if you really know Him. And of course, knowing Jesus is what leverages the knowing of Him. And that's what I long for, for, for me, for, for my kids, and I long for you that we would, would want to know him, and in, in wanting, we will find him. He says, if you ask, if you seek, if you knock, that door is going to be flung wide open, and you will be embraced with him who has nail-scarred hands to embrace you and convince you that you are his now. And forever, and so Father, I pray that uh, you would do this for us. That as your grace abounds more and more, that we would have confidence to know that our knowing you is not a work that we do. It's simply knowing about and longing to know. And and Father, I pray that you would make that a reality for us for any who, who feels that, feels distant, that you would simply have them look upon Jesus and believe, and you will draw near. By your grace, do that, Father, I pray, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.